Good afternoon, all of you. Good to see you here, and it's good to be here. I had not planned to be here today. We've gotten over to Colorado to start our work on the house there, and and uh, the weather forecast was good weather. So we get there, Ivan and I go to bed. Next morning at 5.30, I look out the door, and it's snowing. So I left the door open and set up the camp in a metal shed that's there. And uh, so I left the door open so I could watch the snow and went back to bed and woke up at 8.30, and it was still snowing. And by the time it was done, we had about four inches of heavy, wet snow and started checking weather forecasts, and it all changed. Uh, a strange phenomenon, in a way. Uh, they're expecting 58% chance of precipitation in that area over the Rockies for the next 12 to 15 days. And I saw it on radar. It's just turning round and round in the mountains there. It's quite interesting because that kind of weather is never there. I've lived in the Colorado Rockies, and I've got kids there who've lived there many, many years, and it just doesn't work that way there. Uh, you get a front that comes through, and it drops snow or rain, and in a day or two it's gone. And another front will come through, and then it's gone. You might have some that linger three or four days, but uh, not really much more than that, it seems. But this is just turning, and it's almost like uh, it's a heart thing that has been done to dump a lot of precipitation in the area because there's so much drought, and uh, Colorado Springs, Denver, uh, in that area, and the tunnels underneath Cheyenne Mountain and under the Denver International Airport and so on are going to perhaps be the headquarters of those who go underground from Washington and no telling where else. So maybe they're doing something there, or maybe with Pentecost this close, uh, God just told Ivan and I we need to come home. I don't know. Or it might be all the above. So uh, we'll see what happens there, but we turned around, un got our equipment unloaded, turned around, came home. And this is the fifth Sabbath in the count of seven until Pentecost. I like to make note of that. Now, we've been talking for several weeks about a phenomenon that uh, had escaped us in some respects. Now, I've been really preaching and teaching a certain direction for 27 years now. Once I began to understand certain things that I had not previously understand, nor did Worldwide Church of God ever understand. And even on a weekly basis sometimes, I've prepared a sermon, I want to go through certain things, and afterward they need a title to put on the tape, to put on the internet, and I haven't thought of a title. I've not considered a title. I just went through the material that I intended to go through, so then I have to think how best describe that, how to put a title on it, if you will. And I was thinking this morning, actually, I've been speaking now a message 
for 27 years and had never actually put a title on it per se. Now, the message has been deliverance and restoration, essentially. And then when somebody nudged me a little and said, hey, uh, that needs a title, <laughs> uh, and they suggested one, and that it had to do with the last day of unleavened bread, or the second holy day of the year. And that is that they came through the Red Sea and were delivered, and then Israel was restored to from a state of slavery to a state of freedom under God. So you had both a deliverance, a mighty one, at the first part of the Days of Unleavened Bread, which is uh, Christ being offered, or the Lamb being offered, and Christ would later be offered in the New Testament. But that was a great deliverance in itself, and beginning of deliverance for all mankind. And then seven days later, uh, you had that awesome thing that happened as a physical, uh, not just spiritual, but a physical deliverance and restoral. Now, how does that equate to the end times? And how does it fit the church in what has happened? Because, by and large and overall, the church has not understood what is going on since the death of Herbert Armstrong. There have been some theories, there have been some ideas, but no one seems to be able to really put it all together of what's going on. Now, I'll make a statement here, which I've really made before, but uh, it fits <clears throat> together with what I had in mind to say today. And I was asked a question about an hour before services that has some bearing on it as well. And I was asked a very similar question to that one about two days ago by someone who is not here with us. And it all ties together. Now, can you deny that in the last 37 years, from the death of Herbert Armstrong in 1986 until today, that the church has been wandering in a state of spiritual wilderness, not knowing where they were going, not where they were, knowing where they were going to find food and water, spiritually speaking. We've been wandering about in confusion. Uh, some think that they understand, and they're going this direction. Some think they understand, they're going that direction. But insofar as I know, there's no one out there, no group anyway, that understands what's going on and why. They haven't figured it out yet. Still wandering in darkness on a spiritual level. And God said that that would happen in many, many prophecies that we have read. Worldwide missed some fundamental understanding. Herbert Armstrong missed some understanding. And going on what he misunderstood, and I'm not knocking him, I do believe he was a man of God, I believe God gave him a great deal. But he was not going to be around, even though he didn't know it, for the wrap-up of this whole thing. And... God did not 
let him understand certain things, just like he did with the, the apostles originally. Uh, they understood a lot, but they didn't understand when the end would be, and they thought it would be within their lifetimes, and he wanted them to think that in order to motivate them to get a job done. So he let them work in a certain amount of misunderstanding. And you know, he even said that he spoke in parables that people might not understand, and he did that not only with the world, but in part to his church, not giving them everything they needed. Now, there were a lot of things that Worldwide never got that were reserved for those who would be here at the real hidden time. Uh, Herbert Armstrong and we back then did not need this knowledge. Now, had we had it, we may have reacted differently and things might have been different. But you don't change the flow of history and prophecy or of human nature <laughs> that easily. And certain things had been prophesied in the Old Testament and the New Testament for the end that <clears throat> we have been seeing occurring and are seeing occurring day by day. And we know a great deal of the outcome. Now, from a worldwide standpoint, years ago, and I was part of that growing up in the church from 50s on, early 50s, we thought that the 19-year time cycles applied and that when they came to an end, we would be flying off in an airplane to Petra, which the Bible doesn't say, uh, and be preserved and saved out of the tribulation to come and the end-time events of the world. But that's not the way Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or minor prophets are written nor even some of the things that Christ said don't describe that. They describe a totally different scenario that we just didn't understand, didn't get it. Now, I think God began to give us understanding of that in 1996. In January of 96, the first month of the year, and again in April, the first month of God's year, uh, another bunch of understanding came. Uh, I consider that the former and latter reigns on a spiritual level because of the vast amount that was unloaded on me and Church of the Great God at that time in January and April of 1996. And it opened up understanding of all these prophecies that we had passed over and thought were just for Israel or didn't have to do with the church per se. And God opened understanding that the prophecies are written first to the church. I've said that a thousand times, how many times? And went through it in detail in the Minor Prophets in a long series. That God deals with spiritual Israel first, the church. And then he deals with physical Israel here in the end time on a physical level, secondly. He has to have the bride of Christ in the first resurrection lined out, the 144,000, before he begins to deal with physical Israel and all mankind at the beginning of the millennium. 
the church has to already have been dealt with and then changed in the first resurrection to be there as the mother of the children of the millennium and the great white throne judgment. That has to occur. Now, what we projected did not happen. Herbert Armstrong told me in 1981 in a private conference that he was the rubber bell and he would finish the work. Uh, the implication there, I think, though he didn't say it, was that Ted was the Joshua of Zechariah 3, who was filthy, and with lots of things we don't need to go into. Uh, but he felt that that was the latter temple. Not understanding Haggai and Zechariah, really, he looked at what it said and how the two witnesses would preach the gospel around the world and then the end would come. Therefore, he thought, or implied, that he was Zerubbabel and his son was Joshua and they would preach the gospel around the world and the end of the age would come. In the meantime, the whole church would be taken over to a place of safety during the tribulation. Real simple, but it didn't work. It didn't happen. There are still some who think that's going to happen. Some think Herbert Armstrong is going to be resurrected and finish the work. Some, maybe they're, maybe they're giving up on that, I don't know, 37 years later. Uh, but there are all kinds of theories out there, okay, about what will happen. And some still cling to the idea that they're going to Petra and all will be well because they are Philadelphia. And we've been over this ground many times, but I, I want to put it in the context of what we now understand, why they misunderstood, still misunderstand, and how many are going to wake up and understand. This is important. What's really going on? <clears throat> now, this title to all these sermons for the last 27 years, Deliverance and Restoration, I could go through, if I wanted to take 50 sermons to do it, and go through all those things again and show that it's there. And it comes before Christ resurrects those in the first resurrection, during the end times, the latter days, and that it is a deliverance and restoral that is commensurate to and actually greater than the Red Sea and what happened in the wilderness and going into the Promised Land. Now, this ties together very closely. When you understand the last day of unleavened bread in its meaning, the Red Sea was the deliverance that that day is a type of. The Passover lamb and the Passover and getting them out of Mitzrayim uh, is separate. And that type fits the first day of unleavened bread, Passover day. The Red Sea occurred on the seventh day of unleavened bread and the type, therefore, is set for the end time prophecies to fit with that deliverance. And I may show you today or next week or whenever, again, 
But he talks about this in Isaiah 44 and 45, particularly in the chapter 45, or 44. It talks about how I dried up the sea and dried up the rivers. And then he shows of a great thing he is about to do in delivering the temple vessels probably, perhaps the graves and even mummies of some of the patriarchs, and more gold and silver than the world now understands even exists. And he tells us in Haggai that the gold and the silver is mine. But he shows he's going to raise up someone whom he will reveal these things to in Isaiah 45, that the whole world will know that God is God. So when that earth cracks open, as Isaiah 45 says, and those that gold and silver in the temple treasures, and everything that is there is revealed, it is going to astonish and shock the world to the core. It's going to be something as shocking as the Red Sea. And it says it right there in the context. Now that's slated to happen here in the end time. So the Red Sea and its deliverance is mentioned over and over through the Psalms, through the prophets, that these things that happened in history are only there to show what will happen in greater and more dramatic form, literally, than that was. So those things then that happened that day are a type of what will happen in our lifetime, most of us. That day was very important. Let's understand that in all the years I was in Worldwide, in all the hundreds and hundreds of sermons I heard, I never heard any typology addressed on the last day of unleavened bread, it was mentioned in passing that that was the day that they crossed the Red Sea. But it wasn't tied to prophecy. It wasn't really tied even much to history, other than what a great event. Now, worldwide, understand, never kept, not once, did they ever keep the last day of unleavened bread. Did you realize that? It didn't occur to me till this morning. When they skipped a day and had the night to be much observed on the wrong night, a day late, they put the first day of the last day of unleavened bread a day late. So they were trying to observe the second holy day of the year after it had already occurred. So God never opened the understanding of what it really meant. Well, that was one way they missed the correct day. The other day was due to the calendar and using the Jewish uh, sacred calendar, they call it. Not sacred to God. Sacred to them. But they delayed Passover itself and the day of unleavened, last day of unleavened bread a day or two in many years. It rained. That's okay. Um, they delayed it, so they never even kept it on the right day. Would God give them full understanding when they didn't understand what day they were worshiping on and keeping the wrong Sabbath? 
how much did God reveal of his truth overall of the Bible until someone started keeping the weekly Sabbath? Not very much. He says right there in Exodus that the Sabbath is a sign between him and his people. And if they're not keeping the Sabbath, it's not his people, and they are not keeping it as a sign that he is their God. What was the first thing that God revealed to Herbert Armstrong? The weekly Sabbath. That is fundamental. Until you understand the weekly Sabbath, you can't even begin to understand the plan of God and salvation. Creation was seven days. The seventh day was the Sabbath. The world keeps Sunday, the first day. Creation hadn't even occurred. Just a very small part of it on the first day. The Arabs keep Friday, some of them. Some keep Wednesday, some people. And now I even know people here who keep it from Saturday morning till Sunday morning. Not keeping the day in the proper sequence from sundown to sundown as clearly as shown in Scripture, and they're losing understanding very rapidly. You have to have the weekly Sabbath as a cornerstone of the plan of God. So that's the first thing that Herbert Armstrong understood because he was a man of God and he was challenged on that very issue and said, Poppycock. He was younger than so he didn't shake his jowls. But he started studying the Bible. Not Protestant stuff, but the Bible. And he found out that in the Bible, it's the seventh day, Saturday. And God then began to reveal more truth to him about the holy days and so on. And those are absolutely necessary to understand the plan of salvation. We don't have a secret rapture in which people fly off to heaven. The Bible doesn't talk about going to heaven to stay. We're not going to rule in heaven. We'll rule with Christ on the earth. Revelation 5.10 So, those fundamental things, Sabbath and then the annual holy days were so important to understanding truth. And God revealed after that many, many, many truths to Herbert Armstrong. But he never did open up to him the end time because he was not the rubber bell of Haggai and Zechariah. He died way short of that and never did preach the gospel around the world as a witness. That was not his job as I see it today. He thought it was, and that's fine, because it motivated him to preach. But Matthew 28, 19, and 20 was what his real commission was, and that was to build a church and baptize many so that God had a calling. Many will be called, and then few chosen. So he used Herbert Armstrong to do a great calling and made a pretty good-sized church out of it, even in worldly standards. And then it was obliterated and became a confused mess. But he didn't understand that would happen. Now, he did understand that if he died, the church was in jeopardy. And I've told you before, he told me that in the last meeting I had with him in 1983, 
that if he died, the church would come apart and go into great trouble. So he took his little pill uh, because of that fear. Now, it was prophesied that that would occur, and he did die, and then it did occur. We've had these 37 years wandering in the wilderness since. Now, where does it go from here? The question I was asked this morning, I think I'll go there next. I don't think I'm going to get through all the material I have today. But we have to start answering the question. And uh, there are people out there who are wondering. You don't, for the most part. You understand what the two witnesses will do, what the remnant of the church that is left faithful will do. You know this story of restoration, deliverance and restoration. But now we have a title on it, and it's all tied to the last day of unleavened bread. The deliverance of the sea, the restoration to Israel, and then what happens? Gripe, complain, and murmur. Dear Lord, you delivered us from Egypt. Dear Lord, you delivered us at the Red Sea. Why don't you bring us out here to kill us? Is that logical? Does that make any sense at all? No, but it's human beings who don't make any logic in any sense most of the time. So they started griping immediately. And what did God do? He said, you're going to wander for 40 years. Confusion and frustration until all of your carcasses are lying in the desert sand dead. And I'll take your children in for the restoral. The deliverance and restoral, as I said a week or two ago, were to happen back to back. They were to leave the Red Sea and go into the Promised Land. But the Scripture even says there that because of what happened, He led them away from the Promised Land into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. God doesn't like it when He delivers us and we turn from Him and gripe and moan and complain instead of being thankful and full of gratitude and love to Him because of what He can do for us and does do for us. That's why it says, after you are converted and baptized and given His Holy Spirit and you go back from it, or shrink back as Paul put it in Hebrews, God gets upset and He says, you're just like a dog going back to his vomit or a sow to her wallow. And once you back off from what God has given you, you are in danger, great danger, of losing out on eternal life in the kingdom of God. Because God does not give a calling, a choosing, an adoption in vain. And if you despise it as Esau did, you were in deep trouble with God. And we came to despise, on some level, what God had given us through Herbert Armstrong, took it for granted. We did exactly what Revelation 3 said Lathea would do. Took it for granted, became self-righteous, thinking we had everything 
when spiritually speaking we were naked and blind. So he spewed us out of his mouth as an entire church and told us, repent. Put ice out in your eyes so you can see. Quit being self-righteous and thinking you're the only great thing. And that God's just going to save you because you're in the church and got your ticket punched to Petra. He didn't like our attitude. Spewed the whole church out. And we've wandered for 37 years in a spiritual wilderness. Will that end in 40 years? Now that's what we have in history. And then he allowed the children to go into the promised land with Joshua and Caleb. Only two survived. Even Moses had to go up on the mountain and die and not go in the promised land. And I thought it was an awesome insight recently to realize the difference between speaking to the rock as God instructed Moses. It's okay to speak to Christ. But Christ was the rock that led them through the wilderness. He was the rock that led them out of Egypt and opened the Red Sea. The Scriptures are plain about that. It was okay for Moses to speak to the rock, which was a type of Christ, and ask him to give them water. That's what he said to Speak to the rock. Instead, he struck the rock. Do you strike Christ? He was the rock that led them through the wilderness. The difference between speaking to Christ and striking Him is vast. Every time we sin, we strike the rock. The New Testament makes it very clear that He is, Ephesians 2.20, the cornerstone of the church. And when we speak against him or sin, we are striking the rock. I went through that, but I think it's important we hear it again and get it. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's the one who gives us grace. He's the one who can give us salvation. And we don't want to strike him. And the stripes they gave him before he died, were the same thing as Moses striking that rock physically as a type. So those Old Testament prophecies are coming to pass, did come to pass at his physical death on this earth. And as we sin, we continue to strike him. No, he said, come and speak to me. Come talk to me. Address your Father in heaven in awe and respect, and me along with it in my name. We pray to the Father in Christ's name. So we're truly praying to both at once. You don't separate Jesus out and pray to him. I had a sister who grew up in the church all her life and told me when she was in her 60s that I need to pray to Jesus. I said, show me that scripture. I said, there's nowhere in the Bible that says pray to Jesus. Protestants do all the time. 
Or some, or the Catholics even would pray to Mary. Well, he's dead. He ain't gonna help you. Jesus is alive, but he said, pray to the Father in my name, through my authority. Because when he died and that veil of the temple was rent in twain, it allowed us to go to the Father through him. So we pray to the Father, and we end the prayer in Jesus, and we're using Emmanuel some now, because it says God with us is Emmanuel, God is salvation, is Jesus. And he is not yet with us here, but he will be soon. But he's certainly with us in what he's doing and leading us and guiding us and showing us. So I think we can even use Emmanuel a little ahead of time before he comes and dwells with the church, which he says he will do in Zechariah 2. He's talking about the time of the two witnesses, and it says, I will come and dwell with you. So he's going to be here, and his kingdom, if you will, will be here in microcosm. He will have the two, in that sense, as kings and priests, and he will be king of kings and be here dwelling with us, ahead of the millennium, before the first resurrection. That's what I've been trying to get across for 27 years. But it has to do with the deliverance and restoration of the last day of unleavened bread, and that is a prophecy for now that hardly anyone understands, and the church didn't and couldn't, because it wasn't going to be around when that happened. Now, Peter spoke of it in Acts 3. You remember the events of Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. And by Acts 3, he was talking about the restoration of things, the restitution of all things, and he was doing it in the light of, the context of, Acts 2, where he says, in the first month, I'll give you the former and latter rains, and then later on, your young men and maidens and old people and so on will dream dreams, and the day of the Lord signs will start. And he even mentioned that when he quoted Joel 2. He, he didn't mention the first part of former and latter rains. He only mentioned the second part, the dreaming of dreams and so on, and there were great miracles that occurred on that day in Acts 2. Fire coming down from heaven and people being healed left and right. 3,000, 5,000 converted in one day. All those things began to happen on Pentecost. Now, as I said, I think he gave us former and latter reigns doctrinally and spiritually in 96 in both the first month of the Gregorian calendar and the first month of his calendar. Now, he gave us this information about the deliverance and restoration tied directly to the last day of unleavened bread this year, and I preached it for the first time on the last day of unleavened bread. It's important. But Peter didn't realize that that was only a minor fulfillment in Acts 2. It was major, yeah. Tons of fire and healing, lame, death. It was a great fulfillment. 
But it wasn't the most dramatic and final fulfillment. It wasn't followed by darkness and the heavens being changed in the day of the Lord. In Acts 2, it didn't happen. So, it was a partial fulfillment. Here in the end, it has to be a full fulfillment. And the day of the Lord will be coming right on the heels of it. Same context, same time frame. Whether it be a year or three or five apart, really doesn't matter. Uh, because it's all part of the very final culmination and winding up of the 6,000 years of Satan's reign on the earth. So it may take a little bit of time. What about the 37 years we've been in confusion since Herbert Armstrong's death? Will it continue for three more before people begin to understand? I don't know. Or, will most not understand, but a 10% remnant, which we've read about many times in several scriptures, come out, say, three years ahead of time? He said out of of Sardis, worldwide, (coughs) that it would die, and only a few names would remain from Sardis. Now, can anyone argue that worldwide isn't and didn't die, it's gone. Disappeared. Dead. Gone. A few, a few names remain. Herbert Armstrong thought we were Philadelphia. Well, Philadelphia said, or it says Philadelphia would be uh, protected from, taken to a place of safety from the Great Tribulation. Well, her Worldwide Church of God has come and now gone. Am I lying? Somebody show it to me. Where is it? Where can I go to it? It's gone. Dead and gone. And it wasn't protected from the tribulation. It died ahead of time. So that thing about Philadelphia has to be applying to some other group of people. And Laodicea has to be referring also to worldwide, which not only got completely spewed out, all of it, including you and me. And the church itself died. And Laodicea was told to repent. And most don't, because they still think they're Philadelphians. They're prevented from repenting of what God told Laodicea to do, because they don't think they are that. Now, I will admit and proclaim I'm a reforming, repenting Laodicean. How many, and what is left of what was worldwide, would say that of themselves? No, they think they're a Philadelphian and everybody else is a Laodicean. Therefore, no one is repenting of the things God said to repent of. Still just as self-righteous as ever. Still think they got the ticket punched. Still think they're going to be A-OK. They don't understand what's going on. Now, where do I want to go next here? I'm going to go to... 
Matthew 24, verse 2. I was asked about this before services, and there's some... We've been over this, maybe not in exactly the way that this question was asked, but essentially we've covered this information. Uh, but I want to add to it and uh, show the point uh, that was asked, because it's been asked of me in different ways twice in the last three days. So I think I need to address it, <clears throat> that you and I might even understand it better. Anyway, Matthew 24 says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. So they're sitting there looking at the temple that Herod had restored, uh, and that was the subject. Now, we understand the temple of God to be several things. There were physical temples that Solomon built. Uh, it was destroyed. Not one stone left on another. Uh, and Christ made that same reference here. It could be proactive back to Solomon's temple and its destruction, but it was a question of the future, the way it was asked here. Not about Solomon's, but what would happen to the one they were looking at. And Jesus said to them, See you not all these things, these buildings? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now that temple today is gone. Uh, it was destroyed back in around 70 A.D. And all thrown down. Not one stone left. But the question was asked, what about the prophecies of the Old Testament and is there one that has to do with the end-time temple, or temples, that applies to this. Alright, first then, let's understand, and whoever asked the question probably was asking it from this standpoint. I don't, I don't know exactly where they were coming from. It will all be thrown down. Now, who was he talking to? He was talking to his disciples soon to become apostles. And they were asking about the temple being thrown down, and Christ takes this and moves it beyond even that physical temple, which was to be thrown down and has been, and applied it to the end time. Christ himself did that right here in Matthew 24. Okay? He sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? So he said that in, with more people around, and then in private, they asked him, when is it going to be thrown down? And the end of the world. So he answers their question, in terms of prophecy, not in terms of that particular building that was there at that time, which would shortly be torn down, but he answers it in terms of his coming in the end of the world. That's how it was put to it. So the rest of Matthew 24 and 5, and <clears throat> Luke 21 as a uh, sister scripture, are referring to the end time. 
That's what he answered, and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now that could be in and out of the church, because of those who leave true doctrine and start believing things untrue and deceive others around. Now that's happened a lot within what used to be the church of God. You have people here who are raising themselves up in teachers and they're teaching things that are not in the Bible or that the Bible doesn't say that we thought it said. There's a lot of that going on throughout the church. And that's one reason there's so much confusion. Well, this one says this and this one says that. This one has this opinion. That one has another opinion. What's the truth? That's going on all over what's left of the spittle in the spew. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nations rising against, there'll be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in different places. We're beginning to see these now in greater uh, occurrence than in the last 5, 10, 20, 30 years. They're increasing very rapidly right now. <clears throat> and all these are just, just the beginning of the sorrows that are to come. So what you and I are observing today and watching are the beginning of the sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, this wasn't those twelve disciples that would be delivered up to be killed in the end time. They were going to be persecuted, martyred, and killed back in that day, and were a few years later, except for John. But he's referring to the end of the world and the disciples of those disciples. Remember Christ said uh, to those twelve that he would bless them and all the things he said there in John 15 to 17, and those who came from them. Some began to come from James, Peter, and John, and the others at Acts 2. But Christ is talking about the last time here, the end time. So, you who will be killed will be some of what were true believers. Now, you and I know the church doesn't yet, most of it. I say the church. I mean, those people who were called uh, and are now being chosen from, they don't constitute the church anymore. They're scattered peoples. But they were of the church. Let's put it that way. And they will go into tribulation, 90% of them. Not many understand all those scriptures that you and I know about the 10% remnant who will come and build a temple there in Haggai and Zechariah, and it's mentioned in Isaiah 4 and 6, different places. The 10% will come and finish the work, along with the two witnesses, out of the destruction that has come. So when he refers to those who will be delivered up to be killed... It isn't the 10% remnant who are given protection in Zion. It's the 90% that are left behind. 90% of 
Only 10% will be stirred to come, as Haggai says, a remnant. Isaiah defines it as 10%. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. So when the pressure starts coming, people will turn on each other. Well, I'm not one, but he is. What did Peter say? Well, I'm not one. Same reaction, carnal reaction. And many false prophets shall rise and deceive many, in or out of what was the church. And because iniquity shall abound, sin, the love of many will wax cold. The love of God is keeping the commandments. The breaking of the commandments is hatred. And people will break the commandments and they'll hate one another and become cold spiritually. And this is speaking of those people who are left behind to be under the beast. And the beast and false prophet and Satan will understand who they are. If they take you into captivity and say, okay, you go do this and work on Saturday, they'll say, well, I can't do that. That's the Sabbath. Off goes your head. You'll be martyred right there. 90% will not live through that tribulation. Maybe a few God will allow somehow to escape and manage to be in the millennium, but I doubt if it's very many. The remnant will be protected. Well, the remnant then has to be what? Think about that one real hard. If the remnant is protected, they have to be what? Does the word Philadelphia come to mind? That's who he says will be there in Revelation 3, is Philadelphia. So that means that the remnant church that is stirred to come to the two witnesses to build a temple here at the end are Philadelphia. And all those left out, the other 90%, were not Philadelphia, they were Laodicea. Therefore, Philadelphia does not yet even exist. The people who will be stirred, who have been being, trying to be and being faithful, are the ones he's going to stir, and they will become Philadelphia. A few names out of dead Sardis, and the 10% mostly, that were Laodicea. There's no one now who is officially Philadelphia. They're all either a few names left from dead Sardis or names who are still in Laodicea who will come out repentant and become Philadelphia who will be protected. That defines Philadelphia for you. Those 10% remnant who come to build the temple. They will recognize and they will come. God says, I will stir them. Then is when the Church of Philadelphia officially begins. Because those candidates to be part of the remnant are still out there scattered. Some are in a state of repentance, obviously. Some level of repentance for God to be able to stir them. But others, most of them, are going along still blind and have a Wash their eyes with eyes have in order to see. And even most of those who will be stirred to come still don't see. 
But some events are going to occur that will cause them to see, and you know, and I've been over those, and I'll go over them again. I'll bet you, God willing, and the Greg don't rise. They're going to come, and the temple will be built. Now, I've not gotten yet then, but we had to have this background in Matthew 24. It talks about them being killed. Uh, verse 14, but he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. That means a lot are going to be killed and not be saved, okay? Those that endure to the end. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. So that has not been accomplished yet. The gospel has not been preached around the world as a witness because the end hasn't come. We're 37 years after Worldwide went through its death throes, and the end hasn't come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, then flee to the mountains of Judea. You better know where the true Judea is, because it ain't in the Middle East. It's just not there. I don't have time to go through all that today. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. And it has to be shortened, or no one would be saved alive. For the elect's sake, it will be shortened somewhat. So, that's what he says will happen in the end time. Now, you and I know from Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, that the church in Zion and Jerusalem... And all of those names for ancient Israel and for spiritual Israel all apply to the church. It says church of the firstborn right there in verse 22 or 3. So Israel and Jerusalem then in the Old Testament prophecies are referring first of all to the church. Let me go back and read that again. Hebrews 12. He's warning that we not be like Esau, that we not become bitter, we not become of ingratitude and unthankfulness, but to be thankful and grateful for what we've been given until the very end, those who endure to the end with their godly attitude. Don't be like Esau. We're not come to Sinai, he says, but you are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, God's introducing the church at the end time in these terms. And includes then, in verse 23, the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That would be the end time church. Which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, so the Father first, and then to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than of Abel. Don't refuse him that speaks. He was the spokesman in the Old Testament. He was the rock that led them through the wilderness. Don't speak or strike against him. So the... New Testament church, then, 
is put together with the name of Israel and of Zion. Those things are all a common denominator. They're all one and the same thing. Therefore, when you go back and read the prophecies in the Old Testament, they're referring forward to the latter days, as they often say, and the end time church. So spiritual Israel, Paul made very clear, is the church there in Galatians. And he's referred to old, the Old Testament church as the mother of us all, but that is the New Testament church, we are spiritual Israel. So when you go back and read these prophecies of the end time, they're speaking of spiritual Israel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, are written primarily for spiritual Israel, the church of the end. And when you understand that, you begin to understand those prophecies. And what has happened to the church was prophesied way back then in all those prophecies. What did Ezekiel say? Chapter 5. Spiritual Israel, the church, would have one-third die of spiritual famine and pestilence. Have we seen that going on for the last 37 years? One-third would be taken into by the sword. Have we seen people just die spiritually, dry up and go away, go back to Protestantism or nothing or whatever? They spiritually died. One-third be taken into captivity and a sword after them. There ain't much left. But that prophecy applied to the church and it is done it's not a prophecy anymore to the church. It's history. We have watched that prophecy be fulfilled in the church. It is about to be filled now, secondarily, to physical Israel. And our nation is going to go through the exact same thing the church does went through. We did it on a spiritual level. The nation will do it on a physical level. Very shortly now, one-third of us will die of famine and pestilence. And they were introducing famine and pestilence to us in shots in various ways. And then we're going to have an invasion and the third die by the sword. And the rest taken captive and a sword after them. So what you and I have already witnessed in the church is about to happen to the nation. Count on it. Believe it. It's written. It's going to happen. So we're seeing prophecy fulfilled on two levels. First, spiritual Israel, the church. Secondarily, physical Israel that is still here. Now, what about when this will happen? Or how did that prophecy occur in terms of Old Testament prophecies for the end time temple or church. First of all, let's go to Haggai. I'll try to cover this fairly quickly. Uh, there's a lot in here. I, I can't get to all of it by any means. But I can give you a little bit of heads up on it to answer the questions that have been asked of me. Here in Haggai, it talks about 
uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, who were identified in Zechariah 3 and 4 and Revelation 11 as the two witnesses. So Haggai is a prophecy of the end-time church led by, the remnant led by, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Okay? And he says, quit worrying about your own houses and come build my temple. And he says, he stirs up people a remnant to come and do just that. Now, down in chapter 2, I don't have time to go through all of this. Uh, verse 3, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Now, he says a little later on that there will be old men who saw the former temple and the latter temple and compare them. I guess it's right here, actually. Uh, my eye's not falling on it. But it says that in Ezra as well. Now, the former temple and the latter temple both have to be in the end time because this is speaking of the two witnesses and the remnant. And it's asking, who of you saw the former and now see the latter and how much better it is? Now, there are old people among us who saw worldwide at its finest before it became so self-righteous and Laodicean and lackadaisical. There are still some who saw that. They have not yet seen the latter temple in its glory because the two witnesses are not on the scene visibly, and neither is the remnant called together yet, or the temple built so that that comparison can finally be made. But he says that that former temple worldwide would become as nothing. Now, since it was Sardis, it died and has become as nothing fulfilled. What he says right here is fulfilled about it. Herbert Armstrong always thought he was Philadelphia. No, he was Sardis. Uh, Ellen G. White, the Seventh-day Adventist, was Thyatira. And he was Sardis. Uh, we were part of that. Now we're part of Laodicea. And hopefully, with God's mercy, we'll be part of Philadelphia. We go from one church to another church to the third church, if you will. Because all seven exist at the end time. So there's one. <clears throat> Let's go to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5. Here he's speaking of the, of the uh, vineyard that he would build. Uh, Christ spoke clearly in uh, John 15 to 17 about how he was the vine... The vineyard is based on Christ, and we are the branches. So here he's talking about the vineyard that he built, the church. It's an end-time prophecy of Isaiah. I will sing a song to my well-beloved, the song of my touching his vineyard. Uh, he has a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. So he planted the church with good doctrine and a fruitful hill, and this ties in very closely with Ezekiel 17, so I'm going to use some of the same expressions here before we go there. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones 
uh, thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. He planted a good vineyard in a good spot with good doctrine, and it began to bring forth wild grapes. Well, that's not good for making good wine. It's not, a, it's not what he intended. It went another way, if you will. The same warning he gave the disciples there in John. I'm the vine, you're the branches, you get apart from me, uh, you wither and die. And the church of God began to get away from God, and it withered and died. So this is the prophecy, Isaiah, in time, about the church at the end. Okay? Now we're the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah. Now, we saw in Hebrews 12 that that's in reference to the church, spiritual Jerusalem and Judah. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Christ gave us good doctrine, water, everything we needed. Therefore, when I looked, why did it bring forth wild groups? Grapes. Now, what's he going to do to the end-time church that didn't become the vine he wanted it to become and intended it to? <coughs> Same thing he said to the disciples. What happened to the early New Testament church? It had a great falling away. The disciples were killed. It died. It was gone in 70 years. Simon Magus started the New Testament, called himself Peter, and started the Catholic Church. That replaced the true church. I'll tell you what I'll do to it, verse 5. I will take away the hedge, and it shall be eaten up. I won't protect it. Break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. What did the temple Christ was speaking of have there? Had buildings of stone and wall. I'll lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or digged. There'll come up briars and thorns. Has that happened in the last 37 years? Full of briars and thorns and not producing any good grace. I'll command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So doctrine and truth will begin to dry up. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And we know that to be, first, spiritual Israel, right? The church. It will be torn apart and die. I look for righteousness in verse 7, but behold a cry. Woe to them that join house to house, that lay field to field, there will be no place. We got too many churches, too big, too close together, and it began to fall apart. In mine ears, says the eternal of hosts, of the truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair that were without inhabitants. Start falling apart. I went back in the late 90s down to Florida on a trip. And they heard I was coming down there, some groups of the remnants, of what was left, not the remnants, and I asked them, how big are your groups at that time? About 10%. 90% had gone away of what had been the Miami church and the others down there. 
It had gone away. They only had about 10% left. Desolate. Ten acres will yield one bath. Just a little bit would remain. And it goes on and talks about the feast, and they don't regard the work of God's hand. And uh, verse 13, my people are taken into captivity. Isn't that what Ezekiel 5 says of spiritual Israel? That's what's happened to the church today. Uh, verse 16, but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Then shall the land feed after their manner. Now he turns it from vineyard to the lambs of God, the church people. But it's only the remnant of Haggai and Zechariah and of Isaiah six or 4 and 6. Uh, chapter 6, verse 13. It'll be taken away, a great forsaking in the land, but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return. So the remnant is a tenth of what was. Uh... Verse 21, Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. There's Laodicea, Revelation 3, right there. Woe to them that are mighty to drink wine and the men of strength to mingle strong drink. Be careful of the doctrine you take, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteousness from him. Preach the wrong things and take away what righteousness we did have. Then he says it will be devoured. The blossom, verse middle of 24, shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the eternal of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Didn't that happen right after Herbert Armstrong died? We can keep Sunday now. Don't have to keep Saturday. You don't have tithe anymore. Uh, you can wear all the makeup and lipstick you want. Look like a harlot. It's okay. It began to change all the true doctrine. And get rid of it. Sabbath being number one. And it's a test between God and His people. And then it all went away. Don't have to keep any of the commandments. We're Protestants again now. Evangelicals. Verse 25, Therefore is the anger of the eternal kindled against His people, the church, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them. And the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand stretched out still. And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far. Who is that? Go to Zach, I mean to Haggai's last few verses. And it says, The rubble bell will be set up as an ensign, ensign, before the nations. That's who he's going to set up to go against the beast and the false prophet. So it mentions him right here. Zerubbabel. And will hiss to them from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. So, he's speaking of the church here, and how it will be destroyed, and then how he will raise an ensign, Zerubbabel, and right there in that context, in Haggai and Zechariah, he's the one with Joshua who raised up or managed the 10% remnant who come to build the temple. Spiritual temple, first, and very likely it appears 
to build a physical temple as well in Jerusalem back in 70 weeks. If the beast and false prophet are to defile the temple like they did before by putting unclean things on it, and that's when Christ says flee to the mountains of Judea to Zion. That's when it occurs. So you have to have a temple there for them to defile it. Now, they're not going to defile the church. Because it says right there, when you see the armies gathering that are going to do the defiling, you flee to the hills, to the mountains of Zion, Judea. So the church will flee ahead of those armies, and they will come in and take over the newly built temple and defile it. Not the spiritual temple. It just vamoosed. All that will be left is the physical for them to defile. God will not let them defile the righteous remnant, Philadelphia, who will be taken to the place of safety, which is Zion. It should become quite clear. Now let's go from there uh, to Ezekiel 17. That's probably that's all I have time for. I don't even have time for that, but we're going anyway. You have nothing else to do. <clears throat> now, this one we have gone through before, but it, it's describing the same thing we've been talking about in Haggai, the former temple going away and being as nothing, uh, of, his, of Isaiah 5 and the vineyard and the lambs uh, being torn apart and made desolate. Now, this one is very interesting in that The word came and said, Son of man, put forth a riddle and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. Now, when God spoke in parables, when Christ did, he spoke, as he said, so that they might not, be under, might not understand and be taken and snared. It wasn't their time of salvation. That comes at different times to different people. Everybody gets one, but nobody gets two. So it was both a parable and a riddle. Now, someone gives you a riddle, they say something, tell you something, and you're supposed to figure out what it means. Now, if it's a parable, which is spoken so you don't understand, and it's also a riddle, which is hard to figure out what it means, you got a double problem, okay? <laughs> now, when I was understanding these things, this one mystified me for a long time. And I finally talked to God about it and said, what does this mean? Because you go to the commentaries and they think this was just ancient history and happened in the days of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and all of that kind of stuff, but had nothing to do with the end time, and yet Ezekiel is an end time prophecy, so it has to be applying at the end. Not something that's been fulfilled. So, it's something that God has to open your understanding to <clears throat> until you understand what has happened to the church today and where it is going from here that is going to be delivered and restored. Key phrases having to do with the last day of unleavened bread. When you understand that, and I've preached the whole sermon about it, 
just never put the right title on it. Now we got the title. And we know that it has to do with the last day of unleavened bread. We had understanding of the typology of all the other holy days, but not that one. And now we do. And the church hasn't understood it, still doesn't, and most never will. They'll die in the tribulation. Ten percent will come out and be part of the deliverance and restoration. Now, with that in mind, let's look at this chapter. And say, Thus says the eternal God, A, a great eagle with great wings, long wings, full of feathers, which had different colors, came to Lebanon, took the highest branch of the cedar. So this is a great bird, an eagle, who comes to Lebanon. This is within Israel. This is a part of around the promised land, in the promised land, near Jerusalem. And took the highest branch of the cedar. So, think of Herbert Armstrong as a great bird who came and what he did went around the world, did it not? All colors of people. Lots of different colors involved. Every color there is of man. He cropped off <clears throat> the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic and set it in a city of merchants. So God took Herbert Armstrong, called in Oregon, just a little bitty tiny work, moved it to a city of traffic, Los Angeles, and began to make a great work of it in a city of merchants. That's what Los Angeles is. So he took a twig and gave it truth, cedar. It wasn't, uh, you know, an elm tree. It was important. He took also of the seed of the land, that's you and me, and planted it in a fruitful field. God gave Herbert Armstrong the Sabbath, the holy days, a lot of really good doctrine to be planted in, fruitful field. He placed it by great waters. What did Christ say he'd give us? He is the water of life. His body and blood were the two things that he gave us that were so important. So, Christ was involved in this fruitful field and building this church. You can think of Christ as the great eagle who planted Herbert Armstrong. There's another way of looking at that. It's probably more correct. Placed it by great waters, good doctrine, and set it as a willow tree. A willow tree grows real well if it has plenty of water. Now, it grew... It had the beginnings of a cedar tree. It had that possibility. Just as the vineyard he planted in Isaiah 5 had the possibility of producing good grapes and went wild. We'll see that this one did kind of the same thing. Speaking of the same thing. Set it as a willow tree, not as a bush. <clears throat> and it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. So it had a beginning, a possibility of becoming a cedar tree, <coughs> planted as a willow which grows and thrives in good doctrine, but it became a spreading vine of low stature. That doesn't impress you, does it? 
A spreading vine of low stature does not inspire me the way a redwood or a cedar does. Sorry, it just doesn't. Whose branches turned toward him. Where did the branches of worldwide turn? Less and less to Christ and more and more to Herbert Armstrong. It began to grow inward. It wasn't a projection of Christ. It was a projection of Herbert Armstrong stepping off of a jet airplane in Shanghai or somewhere. And it turned to him, not to God. And in turning to a man instead of to God, we began to get off track. And you're off the track, you don't go anywhere. I stopped. Whose branches turned toward him, and the roots thereof were under him. So, he was used to start it, but the roots were underneath him, and what grew out from him was just a low bush of low stature that turned his branches to him. So it became a vine, and brought forth branches, and shot forth sprigs. That's the best it did. <laughs> uh, a vineyard that didn't produce good fruit, good grapes. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him. Now that confirms that Herbert Armstrong was the eagle, not Christ, uh, who planted that. Here you have another great eagle, which you could name Joseph de Koch. And what happened? This vine did bend her roots to this new eagle. This different eagle. The old eagle died, you got another eagle, and now it begins to turn to Joe Koch. Now there's a mistake. And shot forth her branches toward him, that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. Now, it had been planted in a good soil by great waters, that it might bring forth branches, and that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine like Isaiah 5, but it didn't turn out that way. Say you, thus says the Lord God, shall it prosper? Is it going to work out good? Uh, shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof, that it wither? It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring, even without great power or many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. It died. It withered. It died. And it didn't take many people to cause it to die. Joe, Joe Jr., and a few other fellows that I know who went with it and were part of it. It withered and died. That's why it started. Another good proof here. <clears throat> so, Uh, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? No, it'll wither, uh, and, and, uh, in the furrows where it grew. And it finally got all the campuses and all the property sold off and all that. Over the word of the eternal kingdom, he's saying, say now to the rebellious house. Tekachas rebelled against God, rebelled against the true doctrine Herbert Armstrong had said. And the whole church became rebellious and followed Joe to Koch and turned their branches to him. That's what happened. 
It became a rebellious house. Know you not what these things mean? <laughs> Do you get it? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem, and has taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him into Babylon. Babylon is false religion. Uh, we've shown, and many understand this even in the world, that the United States is the end-time Babylon, which will be destroyed, as Revelation 18 shows in many other scriptures. So what did the Tkachas do? Took the church right back to Babylon, the evangelical Christianity. That's what happened. That's just a matter of history at this point. Zechariah 5, in the context of the two witnesses, says that these two unclean birds, that'll be Tkachas Sr. and Jr., took the church and set it on its feet in Babylon. It says also that God poured a lead, it was like a bushel basket, and God poured a lead in its mouth and shut it up. But the Tkachas planted it in, in Babylon. So it ties in directly with this. <clears throat> uh, he rebelled, shall he prosper, shall he escape that does such things, or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? He told Herbert Armstrong, I'll walk in your footsteps. I'll do exactly as you did. And the minute Herbert Armstrong died or was killed, he immediately walked out of the footsteps of Herbert Armstrong and started making his own tracks back to Babylon. As I live, says the eternal uh, God, surely in the place where the king dwells that made him king, whose oath he despised, Joe despised Herbert Armstrong's deal with him, and whose covenant he broke, even with him, in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. Herbert Armstrong died in the midst of Babylon, L.A. area. Joseph Picot did shortly thereafter in Babylon. Wasn't delivered, wasn't taken to a place of safety, died in Babylon. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the war by casting up mountains and building forts to cut off many persons. Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, uh, when, lo, he had given his hand and had done all these things, he shall not escape. Babylon couldn't save him. The evangelical church couldn't save him. He went to Babylon, went back to the Protestant way, and withered and died there. That's just what happened. So this isn't prophecy anymore. This is history. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath he has despised, my covenant is broken, I'll recompense it on his head. Death. I'll spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken into my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him there for his trespass, that he trespassed against me. So God warned the Tkachas, and they went ahead and did it anyway. I told you the story. I'm going to tell it to you again right quick. When I was in a meeting with Herbert Armstrong in 1981, I went in there 
I, I asked for a visit because I wanted to talk to him about some things. So my wife and I were invited into his office, and he and Joe DeCoste were the only ones there. And Mr. Armstrong didn't address why I was there. <laughs> he had his mind on a successor. And when he had his mind on something, that's what he talked about. If you were around him much, you knew that. Whatever his mind was on, he talked about. Somebody could ask him a question, and he'd go ahead and talk about what was on his mind. And the successor was on his mind. So I'm sitting there, and Mr. Armstrong starts down through the ranks of the evangelist, and he says, who can replace me? I'm getting old, I'm going to die, I've got to have a successor. Who will it be? Well, Ted was already gone by then. And he, he said, well, it can't be Al Portoon. It can't be Rob Meredith. He, he started naming names. It can't be, and he kept on naming the evangelists. It can't be him, can't be him. And then he said, it can't be Joe DeCotch. Now, Joe was sitting right beside him. It can't be Joe Takach. And I was inspired at that moment, I think by God. And I said, Mr. Armstrong, it says that the false prophet will stand in the church of God. Not the Catholic church, not the beast and the false prophet. I said, he will stand in the church of God and say he is God and we'll do what First Thessalonians says he will do. So I said, that's coming to the church of God. And he put that together like lightning. He'd never thought of it. He says, well, maybe that's Dan Rader. Well, he was still, at that time, saying that Stan Rader was a good man. He was still defending him, even though all the church knew he was a rotten uh, betrayer. We knew that. Mr. Armstrong knew that. He just hadn't yet come to admit it publicly. Stan was still around. But there in private, he said, maybe that's Stan Rader. Well, it didn't turn out to be Stan Rader. It turned out to be Joe DeCotch, who stood in the temple of God and put his name and his doctrine above God in the church. I didn't know it, but I was warning Joe DeCotch that day. I was telling Mr. Armstrong he was the man that would do that. And it turned out it wasn't Stan Rader, it was Joe DeCotch that did it. So it says here, I'll bring him to Babylon, and I will plead with him there for his trespass, that he has trespassed. I think God used me to give him that warning. Don't you do this. You're the man, not Stan. It's you. You better not do this. But he did anyway. And all his fugitives, with all his bands, shall fall by the sword... And they that remain shall be scattered toward all the winds, and you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it. Now, he spoke it through Ezekiel in chapter 5. We already went over that today. And he says the same thing now 
right here in Ezekiel 17, and it has occurred. By now, this parable and the riddle ought about be over. This all fits the church perfectly in what has happened. But you couldn't understand it beforehand. It was a parable and a riddle. So now what is God going to do now that he's torn the church apart and sent it into spiritual captivity? He does what he says he'll do in Haggai and Zechariah. Thus says the Lord God, I will take of the highest branch of the high cedars and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. Now he doesn't say this time I'm going to take a great eagle either Herbert Armstrong or Joe Dukat, I'm going to take a small twig, but it's going to be of the best cedar. Who is the best cedar? God. Christ. It'll come from the best cedar. Now, it was planted with, with cedar through Herbert Armstrong, but it be, became a lowly bu uh, bush instead of a tree. Okay? <clears throat> It'll be planted on a high mountain in imminent. It's going to be on Mount Zion. I, I can show you a hundred scriptures to prove this. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. So the church will be built in the height of Israel. You better find out where that is. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. Now start comparing that to what happened under Herbert Armstrong and Joe Koch. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, and the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. So it's going to become a stately tree. It's going to have people from all around the world who have been called, who are now going to be chosen to come as part of the 10% remnant and build a temple. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, and have dried up the green tree, it have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Eternal, have spoken and have done it. So he is going to plant it, and he's going to make Zerubbabel an incense to the nations, and all seven churches, which still exist, right now in the end time, will see that. Isaiah 4 says seven women will take hold of one man. So people from all seven of the churches will take hold of Zerubbabel, and this will flourish, and it will bring forth good fruit. This is what is coming next. So we are going to have 10% delivered, and then restored, and he says that they will, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, and the blind will see, and on and on and on it goes in the scriptures you and I have read and understand. So yes, the church is going to be destroyed. The temple was going to be brought down. And quite a few different places show this. I could give you more, but that's plenty for today. We're way over time. Uh, we'll just skip potluck and go home, okay? Now we might as well eat, we're here. But uh, I wanted to at least get that partially answered, and we'll, we'll go on from there. <clears throat>